7. That's what we will be uh, covering today. And we're going to see as Jesus re-enters this conflict. Um, he is coming in again to uh, Jerusalem, and that is, unfortunately, the stronghold of the enemy. Um, Jesus would meet the Pharisees first. Obviously, those were the first ones to get angry at him. And this, this passage kind of stands on the back of the one where Jesus healed the lame man on the Sabbath. That is why the Pharisees are seeking to kill him, because he had been uh, working, as far as they were concerned, on the Sabbath, and then really made a fool of them when they challenged him for that. But by this point, Jesus has accumulated for himself other enemies as well. And so that's another thing that we'll have to be aware of, is that the first thing it mentions is there are chief priests. Now, the chief priests would have been mostly Sadducees, um, and especially the Sanhedrin would have been full of Sadducees. And so why does that matter? Well, the Pharisees were the most legalistic group in Judea. They believed in the Old Testament. They tried to follow it to the letter, but also they believed in Jewish traditional law, and they enforced that as if, as if that was the law of God. The Sadducees, on the other hand, only believed in the first five books of what we would consider the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the rest of it. They didn't believe that that was Scripture, uh, so it wasn't authoritative. But they also didn't believe in resurrection and other things um, that would have been supernatural. So angels, things like that, they didn't believe in those things. And so for the Sadducees, they were the more secular of the religious group. Um, they had the power in the Sanhedrin and in the temple, so many of them were in the chief priest or the priest area, but also they were friends of the Romans. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees would have been natural enemies, but because of Jesus, they were joined together. And another group that the, this passage doesn't mention is a group known as the Herodians who wanted to reestablish the rule of the, the Herod's family in, in Judea. So all of these three gathered together to be a very powerful enemy against Jesus. All the power the Jews had was really kind of tied up in these three groups of people that hated Jesus and wanted him dead. They all had their reasons, but for the most part, the, the reason centered around the fact that whereas they played at power and they played at authority, Jesus truly had it, and that was a threat to them. Now, when we look at this passage today, we're going to see Jesus as he goes back to Jerusalem. Um, and this time, he doesn't speak in parables. He doesn't play games or, or tricks or anything like that on the people. He speaks clearly. He plainly proclaims that he gives life to those who believe. Now, these leaders that are against him, they don't hide their intentions either. They want Jesus dead. They're not saying we want him for questioning or we want to know more about what he's saying. No, they want him dead, and they make it plainly clear. So in this passage, we see why the world hates Jesus so much, and we will also see the offer that Jesus makes for eternal life. So the sermon in the sentence is this. Jesus is an inexhaustible source of living water that produces and supports spiritual life. There's a lot of details in this passage, and there's a lot of things that happen, conversations that happen. Um, you get to know what some of the crowd is thinking and some of the people that are against Jesus is thinking. But the very heartbeat of this is an offer that Jesus makes to be the living water for those who will accept him. And so that's going to be the main thing that we look at, although we will try to see some of these details and see what is actually going on. So I'm going to read to you the passage, John chapter 7, verse 1, all the way through verse 53. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. 
he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Jerusalem that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If, anyone, uh, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not, the, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he is from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? 
Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because, the, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, or, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house. Okay, so as we get into this, the first thing we're going to see is some of the unbelieving and some of the confused. Um, the unbelieving would be Jesus' brothers to begin with. The confused is really the city because for the most part, the city had a lot of different opinions about Jesus. So as our passage opens up, we see that Jesus has an ongoing ministry in Galilee and the Jews are constantly seeking to kill him. That's verse 1 and 2. One, they're, 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 you know, he's in Galilee. Two, they're seeking to kill him. So we kind of see that right away. Um, this ministry, just for the chronology's sake, this ministry in Galilee would have lasted about 18 months. Um, it is recorded pretty clearly in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't say so much about it. Uh, but what this means is that from the, 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 the one year that passes to the second year that passes, the 18 months of Jesus' ministry, the events that we're reading about today take place about six months before the Passion Week, before Jesus is crucified and buried. So it mentions the Feast of the Booths. And the Feast of the Booths was a commemoration of the people's time in the wilderness and God's um, uh, provision. So this was one of the major feasts of the Jews. It would occur uh, roughly late September, early October. Remember the Jews had a lunar calendar so that the dates of this could move. Um, it, it happened shortly after the harvest. Uh, because it happened shortly after the harvest, it took on a lot of the same characteristics that our Thanksgiving does now. Uh, it was a celebration and a lot of people celebrated it at their homes. But many people did go to Jerusalem and celebrate. And it appears that Jesus' brothers were headed to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so they actually began to challenge him on that. This celebration was an eight-day celebration. It was originally seven days. Uh, in the days of Nehemiah, another day was added. And so it was over a week long that the, that the, the celebration lasted. Now, Jesus' half-brothers, they try to pressure him to return to Jerusalem for the feast because they believe that he is wasting his works in the countryside 
they say, if you're actually doing these works. So they didn't believe in Jesus. They, they knew things were happening. Um, they knew that he was saying things, but they did not believe until after Jesus' uh, ascension into heaven. So for them, this was all kind of a game. You know, if you're going to be on the stage, why not be on the stage? You're out in the countryside doing you know, things that sheep and goats can see. Why don't you go to the city let your disciples actually see who you are? That was kind of their goading him or challenging him, and they really did not believe. Jesus knew they didn't believe, so he tells them that they can go to Jerusalem anytime they want to. Now, most of the time, when the word time is used in John, it, it, it is the, the, the word for hour, like this hour, this appointed time. Um, but in this particular instance, it's more about the appropriate time or the appropriate hour. And he says, it's always the appropriate time for you to go to Jerusalem, but it's not always the appropriate time for me to go to Jerusalem. And so that's what he's saying. They're not going to hate you. They're going to hate me. And, and, and so he goes on to say that, 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 that the world hates him because he testifies that, that its works are evil. And, and in this case, when he says the world, he's not talking about the Romans or the Greeks or the philosophers. He's not talking about the, you know, the people that lived in the outer re regions of civilization. He's talking about the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin. He's talking about the Jewish religious elite. He's calling them the world, and he says that they hate him because he tells them that their works are evil. Now, what's unfortunate is that when we look at, all throughout really, when mankind takes religious people, spiritual people even, and they begin to build places of power for themselves, it is almost always corrupted. Those places of power become something that, that people aspire to, and in that, in that ambition, instead of seeking to serve the Lord or honor God, they seek to gain that authority, gain that power, gain that position. And so in, in this hierarchy of men, it's almost always a problem. And so Jesus looks at that as the world and says that its works are evil. The way that Jesus' brothers would have come into Jerusalem was part of a caravan. Um, and and these, these feasts are, are happy occasions. And so as the caravans come in, those inhabitants of Jerusalem would have kind of celebrated with them. It wasn't a parade in the way that we think of it today, but it would have been a lot like a parade. Um, and, and Jesus would come in on one of these caravans eventually. We know that. The triumphal entry, that's when Jesus would come in. But until then, it wasn't his time to come in by way of a parade. So the brothers would have probably went on ahead they were probably in Jerusalem and they would have went in that parade procession but Jesus himself was not going to go that route in Jerusalem the Pharisees were searching for Jesus and would have been watching every caravan and every gathering asking if anyone had seen him so as the caravans come in they would have had people watching to see was Jesus among those groups? They would have been going to the different gatherings around the city to find out if Jesus was there and if anyone had heard anything about him. In fact, the way that Scripture says, the city was literally buzzing about Jesus. It says they were muttering. Everybody was muttering about Jesus. It was buzzing about him. And some people thought that he was a good man. Some people thought that he was leading people astray. It just depended on where they were from and, and kind of how they had been shaped. The one thing that was clear is that no one was going to speak openly about what they thought about Jesus because they knew the Pharisees had made it clear through their channels of communication that they wanted him found and executed. 
You see, this was the authority and the power of the Pharisees and the religious elite of that day. They could communicate falsehoods and people took them for the truth. They could say what they wanted and people would even question what they saw and what they believed and what they thought about things. And so they could, they could basically make people believe lies and propaganda, the power that they had, because they could present that to people and people would not challenge them. Now, Jesus was not in hiding. He did come in secretly, so he probably passed through Samaria, came into Jerusalem that way, but he wasn't hiding because the first thing we see of him, he's literally standing in the temple, the center of it all, teaching uh, and, and proclaiming to the people the truth of God. Now, when Jesus teaches, not only does he know the scriptures, he is the word of God, if we remember how this book starts, but he knows what they mean. And so when he teaches the scriptures, he teaches them and puts them together in a way that explains what God is doing. So he taught with authority. So the, the, the Pharisees, the, the, the chief priests and all those, they say, how can this man teach like this even though he's not studied? Now, they don't know if Jesus sat and studied the scriptures or not, but what they do know is that he did not attend their rabbinical schools. He didn't go to their seminaries, to borrow a different word. And so because of that, they didn't think he could know anything. It was almost as if if he didn't learn the way we learned from where we learned it, he doesn't know anything. And so it was a very elite, it was a very exclusive sort of thought process that, that if you didn't go down the path that I mean for you to go down, then you can't know anything. But for Jesus, his, his authority, his teaching, his wisdom was beyond question, and so they were amazed. It says that they marveled. Now, not every time when the Bible says the word marvel is it a good thing. Sometimes marvel is good, they're amazed, they're, they're pleased, sometimes they're perplexed, sometimes they're confused. And so a couple of times in this passage, it is used that way, that it was confusing for the people uh, because he was not what they, what they wanted him to be. So as the people begin to question his learning and, and his teaching and things like that, um, he points out that he must be a teacher of God because he's not self-centered. As he is proclaiming God... He is proclaiming who God is, not for his own glory. That's one of the real keys, he says, about false teachers, is that the way they proclaim the, the scripture, it's going to be self-serving in some way, rather than just pointing to God and giving God all the glory. He says he doesn't do that. He actually challenges the Pharisees. He accuses them of breaking the Sabbath by performing the rite of circumcision on the Sabbath. So he says, Moses gave you the law and none of you keep that. That would have made them all sit up and pay attention because they took seriously. It was their job to obey the law of Moses. So when someone says you're not obeying the law, none of you are, it would have really been one thing to make them sit up and say, wait a minute, now what is he actually saying here? And so what he does is he says, you've got the law. And within that, we know that right now the main conversation is not working on the Sabbath. Well, they also have the right of circumcision. Now, we know where this comes from. This goes all the way back to Abraham. And on the, the, the eighth day of a child's life, he was supposed to be circumcised. So if that eighth day happened to fall on a Sabbath, even though that would have been considered work, they went ahead and circumcised the child. And they basically told themselves that it wasn't breaking the Sabbath to do this because God decides when children are born. And so if God decided a child would be born and that his eighth day would fall on the Sabbath, then so be it. And so they did that. And, and basically what Jesus is saying is that y'all are hypocrites because in one way, you work on the Sabbath, you circumcise on the Sabbath, yet I made a man whole, and this all has to go back to this guy that was lame, and Jesus raised him up, 
And so he says, but I make a man whole and you judge that. And so what Jesus is saying is that they don't judge rightly. Every situation has circumstances and they're not looking at the circumstances. Um, Jesus isn't judging them for this practice. He's merely pointing out their hypocrisy for judging him for doing work on the Sabbath. So what we need to know about the responses, because you saw lots of responses. People said, well, he's a prophet. He's the Christ. He's a good man. He's leading people astray, all these things. There was a very interesting mix of people in these, these crowds. And so that's why for some things, so when Jesus says, and you seek to kill me, and they say, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Well, he had just taught the scriptures expertly. And so there were some people that thought, this is amazing and I'm enjoying it. And then he says somebody's wanting to kill him. Well, who's wanting to kill him? You've lost your mind. Nobody would want to kill you. You are a treasure. And, and so here's what was happening. Not only did you have the people that lived in Jerusalem, those people had been thoroughly, um, I, I guess you would say brainwashed by the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders into hating Jesus for, for all the reasons that they could give them. And so that people, that group would have been pretty much against Jesus. Then you would have had the Jews from the outlying regions, maybe Galilee, some of the people that saw some of the works of Jesus. They knew what the religious leaders thought of Jesus, but they had also saw his works and they had heard his teaching. So, so they would have been on the fence about Jesus at least. And then there were the pilgrims. And these are the people where we get the genuine and, and, and good responses. Those that would have come from far away, they'd not heard of Jesus. They didn't know about the controversies. They may not have knew about the miracle on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus teaches and then says, well, you want to kill me? He's like, they're, they're, they're basically the ones that are saying, you're crazy. You know, there's no way that anybody wants to kill you after what you were teaching. And so that's where the problem comes in. That's why we see so many different responses. But the majority, obviously were with the Pharisees and were against Jesus. So one of the things that a lot of people were kind of hanging on to was the popular theology of the day. And that indicated that no one would know the Messiah until he presented himself in Jerusalem. The idea was that at some point the Messiah was going to show up and say, here I am, I'm the Messiah. And the people were going to say, show us a sign. And he would do something that would convince them all, which after reading the life of Jesus... What would this guy have to do to prove to these people that he's Messiah? Jesus was literally raising people from the dead, walking on the water, calming storms, feeding 5,000 people with a little lunchbox, and they still didn't believe him. So what would the guy that walked into Jerusalem and said, I'm the Messiah, what would he have to do to convince the Jews? We don't know. But what we do know is that their popular thought process was, he's gonna, he, we're not going to know him. He's not going to have made a scene. He's not going to have made a splash. Well, Jesus certainly made a scene and made a splash. People knew who he was. So that was one thing. That was the popular theology was that he wasn't going to be known. But nowhere in Scripture does it actually say that. Now, it does talk about the unpredictability of the timing of when the Messiah will come, but it never says that he won't be born and, and be a human that people know and all that kind of stuff. And they were kind of expecting something different than what Jesus really was, obviously. The other problem is that most of the people in Jerusalem at that time did not know that Jesus had actually been born in Bethlehem. And so they're saying, well, he came from Galilee. Does anything good come from Galilee? Does the Messiah come from Galilee? They're asking these questions, and Jesus really did come from Bethlehem. Now, probably, 
within this mix of Pharisees and chief priests and Sadducees, there were some people that had investigated him so thoroughly that they would have known he was born in Bethlehem. They would have known that he was born around the time of the census and that everybody had been called back to their places and to their homes. There would have been some people that would have dug. They would have done some investigation. They would have found out the truth about him, but they weren't willing to share that truth. They weren't willing to tell people what they did know. And, and so that's why between this lack of truth, lack of information, and this popular theology, well, let's just say it like this, popular the theology and a shortage of truth are a toxic mix for anyone seeking to find the will of God. When you start listening and, and, and taking in what the world has to say, and even a worldly version of the church, when you start taking that in and, and, and accepting that, and then not seeking the truth for yourself to find out the facts that you need to really build your decision, that's a toxic mix. We'll never find the actual truth, the truth that God means for us to have. So it's at this time that it begins to mention that the Pharisees are sending officers to go after Jesus. They're trying to arrest him, but they're not going to be successful. I mean, John kind of puts that in there a few times that it's, it's not Jesus' hour, so nobody's going to arrest him. Nobody's going to lay hands on him. Jesus explains to the crowd that he's available now for whoever believes. He says, I'm with you now, but I'm going somewhere. I'm going away. I'm going to him who sent me, and you can't come after me. You won't be able to find me. Now, obviously, the Pharisees didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They believed that he might be going out of town, that he may be going to another country. They didn't understand what he was saying, but he's saying, I'm available now. When you actually seek me, I won't be available and that serves as a very important reminder for us. It's important for us to remember that while we wait on the Lord, and we need to, Jesus was clear to always give deference to God and His plan and His purpose instead of just running into trouble. But while we wait on the Lord, there are times when, or well, not times, we must never delay obedience to God because we are not promised tomorrow. So Jesus always showed that we wait on God, but when He presents the truth, and he gives them the challenge to believe, it's time to believe. And that's same, the same thing is true for us today. And so when he presents the truth, when the truth is out there, and, and we know what God wants, it's time to obey. And it's time to obey immediately. We can't wait around. We don't know what else might happen in this life or in this world. So here we get to the very heartbeat of, of this passage where Jesus makes this proclamation. It starts in verse 37, the water of life. So one part of the Feast of Booths is the fact that on that last day, or well, I think every day, but on the last day specifically, the priest would take a, 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 a jar and, and he would fill up water from the pool of Siloam and he would go to the altar and he would pour it out. Now this was a reminder to the people of the water that God provided from the rock when they were in the wilderness. It is also just thankfulness for water that kind of provides life. And it's also a prayer for the rains for the next, so that they'll have another harvest so they can celebrate again next year. It, it's all about this water and, and water symbolizing life. And that's kind of what it's about. So it's, it, it's in the backdrop of these Old Testament promises that are fulfilled and, and the provision of God. Uh, that Jesus stands before the crowds and proclaims that he is the source of living water. So imagine that. This whole time you've kind of been thinking about harvest and the fact that the rains were right, so we have a harvest, and, and you're seeing this, this symbolism of the water being poured out. And then Jesus stands before people and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now imagine the power of that. That would have been something that changed some people's mind. Anyone who thirsts should come to Jesus and he will give them the water of life and spiritual life will flow from that person's heart forever. Now John helps us to understand that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit did not yet come to the believers at that time. What this helps us to see is that John is writing much later. He's writing to people that are Christians, but they wanted to know the story of Jesus. And so for them, they may not have known, maybe they hadn't been told that the Holy Spirit didn't always come into people's hearts. Um, so so they, they've had the Holy Spirit. They've known about this river of life in their own life. And so when Jesus says this and, and they're reading this, it testifies to the truth in their own lives. And so John helps them to understand there was a time where believers didn't have that. People didn't have that same uh, blessing. And so Jesus is saying, from me comes those living waters, comes that eternal life. And so that's what he's saying there. Now, the power of this scene did cause some people to believe, while others really had to search for reasons not to believe Jesus. This is when they start saying, does the Messiah come from Galilee? Uh, they were looking for any reason to not believe in Jesus. And let me tell you, if you listen to people today, that's still going on. People looking for reasons not to believe in Jesus. Some, some chink in the armor. Um, I do wind up reading a lot of commentaries, and, and that's one of the things that commentaries spend a lot of time doing is, well, some people say this is a conflict with this because of this and so forth and so on, but it's not. And so you get these long conversations about why this event and this event, although they're similar, they're different, and they're, they're not in conflict in any way. There was even a big debate um, in, in this particular passage because Jesus said he's not going to Jerusalem because his hour has not come yet, and then his brothers go on, and then later he goes on. So they're saying, you know, some people are even saying Jesus lied to his brothers right there. That's not what's happening, but people are looking for any reason not to believe in Jesus instead of looking for the clear evidence that is before them. And what I would suggest to you today, if you search... And if you strive, you can find some reasons not to believe in God. But you don't have to search. You don't have to strive. The evidence of God is before us all. When you look around this world and see what God has created, when you just simply read His Word and listen to the story that He has told us, if you look into your heart and listen to what is being said in your heart as you read the Word of God, you will know that the claims of Christ are true. But people want to find some kind of evidence. They want to find something that they can hang on to that says, no, God is not real. And why? Why? Because no matter how many times we're told, just pray this one little prayer and you'll go to heaven, we know that the call of Christ is a demanding call. We know that it is hard to follow Jesus. We know that it calls us to change our lives. We know that it calls us to end the life that we now live so that we can walk in a new life. We know that it is difficult and so we'd rather not believe. We'd rather not believe that we've been called to change everything, to forsake everything, and to live a different sort of life. And so that's why we look for that evidence that Jesus may not be real. So we know that the uh, officers that were sent by the Jews, even they would not arrest Jesus because they were astonished by his authority. He didn't say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this. He says, no, I say I am the living water. And so when he says that, it affects them, and they refuse to even arrest Jesus. 
So when the clear light of the gospel is shown and we are given a reason for our faith, we must believe in order to receive the life Jesus has promised. We have to accept what He's offering. We can't change it. We can't edit it. If it becomes inconvenient because of the culture or whatever is surrounding us, we, we can't back down. We must believe what Jesus has said regardless of what the world wants us to do. And so finally, let's look at these frustrated foes, these Pharisees and chief priests and all of this group that was trying to arrest Jesus. We get to see kind of their inter, inner workings and how angry they are. So first of all, the officers return to the chief priests and Pharisees and, and immediately these guys challenge the officers and say, why didn't you bring him to us? Why didn't you arrest him? Um, but these guys say it was Jesus' authority. No one has ever spoke like this man. And, and this is the message. No man has ever or will ever speak with the clear authority of Jesus because he is the only one sent from God to give us life. A preacher can stand up and proclaim the words of God but I'm proclaiming God's words. Jesus is the only one who has ever stood on this earth and been God and said the words of God. That, he's the only one. And so the, the, even the officers knew, we, we don't have authority here. We cannot take this man. We do not have the ability to take this man. So it's at this point that the religious people really begin to express their true hearts. So they show disgust to the officers, first of all. They say, have you been deceived also? And then they show what they think about the common people. They say, all of these common people, they don't even know the law. They're accursed. Now, if, if you want to kind of look at the economics of it, you couldn't live a life that was successful being a religious leader unless there were people that believed in your religion. You don't, you don't find traveling messiahs that are, that are incredibly wealthy when they don't have followers. Only when they have followers are they actually wealthy. So these Pharisees, the chief priests, all of those folks, they economically would have depended on the commoners, but they hated them. They disdained them. We can see that. They say they're accursed, which is a very strong word in the Jewish language. And so for them to say that, they didn't like these folks. And, and, and they were grouping large groups of people. So we, we know that they didn't really care for the Jews that lived in the area around Galilee. Those were country folks. Those were farmers. Those were fishermen. Those were people that, 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 that worked. They didn't study the Word of God like we did. And so for them, they were, they were the standard. They were the gold standard. But one thing you find is that if a whole country, every person is devoted to just reading the Bible and fussing at people that don't believe it the way they do, that whole country is going to starve to death. And so that was a problem for the Pharisees. They disdained the people that were going to be holding them up. In fact, only Nicodemus would speak for Jesus by insisting that there must be a trial before any man is condemned. He said, our law doesn't condemn a man without hearing what he has to say. And, and the, the, the people turned on them, at least the spokesman turned on Nicodemus and said, are you from Galilee too? They knew where Nicodemus was from. But what they were saying was, are you unlearned? Are, are you deceived also? Are you fake also? And so that's what they challenge him. And they even, in their rage, they try to alter reality by saying that no prophets, there are no prophets that come from Galilee. Well, the Bible's pretty clear that Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, and others come from Galilee. So they made a mistake in the Scriptures or, or tried to misrepresent the Scriptures to make their point. This is a dangerous thing. When people start twisting Scriptures to make their point, you know that they feel as if they are being threatened and possibly even defeated. So the Jewish leaders denied the truth because they did not want to believe in Jesus. This is the very core of it. It's not that they weren't convinced. 
It was that they did not want to believe in him. They did not want to believe in him because here is Jesus who is, is making um, all of their traditions and especially all of the, the, the structures that give them power, he's making them irrelevant. And so they don't like that. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They reject him, and so they fight against him. Now, it says very simply in verse 33, uh, after this conversation, the council leaders broke up and went home because they couldn't agree on what to do about Jesus. So it's at this point they kind of scatter. They're going to come back together, and they're going to come back together with a plan, and they're eventually going to arrest Jesus, but not at this point. Those that prefer lies to truth will also prefer death to life until they receive it for themselves. Now think about that in modern culture. Those that prefer lies to the truth, they'll also prefer death to life until they receive it for themselves. Don't we have a culture right now that says it prefers death? They're not lining up to, to, to be aborted. But we have a culture that prefers death to life. Give, give this choice to these people. No, no regard for the choice of the one that is being killed. This, this same group of people would prefer the lies that they tell themselves to the truth that is pretty plain and clear. They say it's not a lie. Well, it's pretty plain and clear that, plain and clear that it is a lie. And so we have a culture just like that. We have a culture that prefers lies. It prefers death so long as they're the one that's not having to pay the price. That is a sad, sad culture. So to wrap this up, Jesus stands before all people and offers eternal life to anyone who will believe. There is no compromise in the gospel. There is no, you give all of your life except this. You give all of your life except this. You submit your entire intellect except this part, this part you get to hang on to. There's no compromise. You take what Jesus has to offer or you go away. He has done all that he can do to prove that he is the source of life. Just remember what the people said. If a Messiah does come, is he going to do more works than Jesus? And the answer is no. No one's going to do more works than Jesus. Jesus has proven his point. He has made his case. He is not asking for blind faith. He's asking that you believe on what you have actually seen. So I know this is a somber note to end on, but I believe this is true for the world and hopefully it motivates us. If we miss Jesus, there is no other hope for us. If you're here this morning, I believe you most likely are a believer in Jesus Christ. But I know and you know, we all know people who are not. And I'm not going to soften the blow. Those people who are not believers in Jesus Christ have no hope. They have no other hope. And so we must be about the business of telling others about Jesus. We must be those voices that, that stand out against the crowd. The crowd's telling people to believe in themselves. The crowd is telling people to be themselves. The Word of God is saying, believe in Jesus and be like Him. And so my encouragement for each of us is, as we look at a passage like this where the weight of the world was against Jesus and He stood and proclaimed the truth, we need to st stand and proclaim the truth. The weight of the world is against us. And the more we proclaim it, the more weight the world will throw against us. But we proclaim the truth because there's no hope outside of Jesus Himself. Let's have a word of prayer.
Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you once again for your word that guides us, it challenges us, and yes, it also educates us. We know about Jesus because of what we read in your word. But we also know that we, without you, are hopeless. This morning, Father, I pray that each of us have already made our choice to follow you. But if there's one that hasn't, I pray that today is that day for them. But we know that when we leave this place and we go out, almost immediately we will be encountering people that do not know you as their Lord and Savior. Some are really, really good people that just haven't made that decision. There are some people that we will encounter that are not lovely at all. People that challenge our southern hospitality and politeness. But the reality is, they're just as lost and just as hopeless as those that we love that do not know Jesus. And it is our responsibility, our calling. You gave us a mission to tell them. And so, Father, I pray that we can make in our heart a commitment to tell others about Jesus, whoever they are, whatever circumstance we find ourselves, let us talk about Jesus. For there is no one else that offers life. There is nowhere else to get that river that flows with abundant spiritual life for all eternity. Remind us, Father, that for those conversations, it is not a temporary effect but it lasts for all time. And so I ask that we would be about that most important of business. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.